This is Studio Two on a Tuesday. I'm Cherry Gregg. And on a Tuesday, I'm Avi <laughs> Wolfman. Errant coming up. With Thanksgiving approaching, Cherry, we're going to talk about crops mm. and indigenous food traditions that are vanishing in the U.S. Food historian Sarah Lohman calls this endangered food in her new book. She'll take us on a fascinating tour of our food history and rare foods worth preserving, including a cider apple from right over the river in New Jersey. Interesting. Also, later in the hour, we talk about Philadelphia's exceptional street art scene. Blogger Conrad Benner hosts the new WHYY podcast, Art Outside. The first episode dropped today. It's that new. That's how new it is, exactly. And the shopping season. It's already here with these pre-Black Friday deals bombarding my email and text messages, too, okay? Really? Yes. You're getting yes, texts yes. about I deals? I am. I am. you got to unsubscribe from I some do. stuff. I do. I do need to do that. And so we're going to talk about consumer spending amid economic uncertainty. As always, you can uh, add your calls and comments, not your text messages yet, but maybe we need a service maybe, for that. Yeah. Uh, our number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. But first, Cherry, let's start with the big news out of Philadelphia this morning. Well, Mayor-elect Sherelle Parker is expected to make her first staffing announcement tomorrow morning. It's a big one. Police Commissioner... And the name floating around is familiar. Kevin Bethel. You probably yep. heard that name before. He's the current chief of school safety for the school district of Philadelphia. Been in that position for four years. Before that, he spent three decades on the police force, eventually becoming deputy commissioner in 2008 under former commissioner Charles Ramsey. He led patrol operations across the city. He retired from PPD in 2016. Now, he's been big on ending the school to prison pipeline mm -hmm. over the years. Mm -hmm. He rebooted the school police, calling them safety officers. Yep. They no longer wear police uniforms. They wear like these white polo shirts. He talks about mentoring and trauma-informed care with students. And, you know, Parker has been talking about public safety. It's been a cornerstone of her campaign. And she said she wanted somebody who knew Philadelphia, but also someone she could trust and the rank and file police officers could trust. So Kevin Bethel kind of makes sense in that regard. It makes a lot of sense in that specific mm -hmm. regard. The idea of having someone from Philly. We know that Parker likes to talk a lot about her deep Philly roots being a Philadelphian mm -hmm. through and through. And you mentioned that she wanted someone who might have the trust of the rank and file. Well, here is someone who worked in the department for decades. It's a somewhat surprising choice, I think, in, in a different regard which is that Parker's campaign rhetoric around crime was very tough. Yes. Mm -hmm. And Bethel's reputation, at least in his latest chapter, I want to put this the right way, it was a lot about diversion and not relying on arresting people and, and thinking about things in a more reform-minded way. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean they're incompatible on that front, but I thought it was interesting in that regard, having you know interacted with Bethel a bit as an education reporter, his reputation wasn't a tough on crime mm -hmm. type of reputation. So I wonder a little bit uh, how that will play. 
Yeah, it's interesting because Parker has always said you can be tough on crime, but still have police reform. Yeah, she said that, and it seems like she thinks that Kevin Bethel can walk that line, sort of bridge the two. Yep, because she, but and he's he's going to have to be big on recruiting more officers. You know, there are a thousand officers down. That's going to be a big deal. So he has a lot of work to do. Sure does with the gun violence. I mean, Parker talked about legal stop and frisk. Can you imagine walking that tightrope yep. with all the reformists kind of looking on? So if anybody can do it, I think she thinks he can. Yep. So looking forward to that announcement. You tomorrow. said this is, this is the big one. Yeah. There's a lot of announcements coming, but this is the one a lot mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. were focused on. A lot of people last night in Philadelphia were also focused on a football game mm. taking place in Kansas City, Missouri. Between the Chiefs and the Eagles, you might recall, Cherry, these two teams met last year in the Super Bowl. Didn't go great last year Mm -hmm. for the Eagles. Mm -hmm. They lost a nail-biter. But this year, they somewhat avenged that with a regular season victory, 21-17. They came back in the second half. They closed it out on the road. Hostile environment, and I can tell that you're fired up about this because you're wearing Chiefs colors today. All oh, red. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> you were really paying close attention well, this last. This is more for the holidays. Okay, but, got it. Yeah. you're absolved. I'm sorry. You know, Eagle. You know, Eagles green is a holiday color too. True. I'm just putting that out I'll there. Put that out there. Oh man, but congratulations to the Eagles, nine and one. That's pretty, pretty good. If there's only one you can do better yeah. than that. It's ten and zero. Oh. And, yeah. and shout out to you know Jalen Hurts on that second half. You know, turn around. I'm really. Proud Proud of him. And all I can say is, you go watch zero point zero minutes of this football game. <laughs> I highlight reels on Twitter. That's or right. X. That's all you, you know. Need. That's it. That's all you need. I will admit that I watched with the sound off because I was doing some prep for today's show, mm-hmm. and I think that was the right decision because I'm guessing that on the broadcast they talked way too much about the Kelsey brothers and Travis Kelsey. And his very famous girlfriend. I don't know because I wasn't listening, but uh-huh. I was a little worried that maybe that would dominate the broadcast. So you just turn the sound off and all you get is just the images of large mm-hmm. men running into each other. Pretty and you, cool. And you get, you get right around that issue. You get an A plus for multitasking. <laughs> Go you. ahead. But talking about highlight reels. Mm. That's a good one, right? That's a heck of a transition. <laughs> Shapiro. We're getting too our good governor, at this. I know. Our governor, Setting the bar too high. <laughs> our governor, Josh Shapiro, I gave a little bit of a highlight reel uh, during a recent speech at the press club where he took questions and he, you know, reflected on some of his wins during his first year in mm-hmm. office. His highlight reel of accommodations includes reopening of 95 within 12 days after a fiery crash, an executive order, you know, putting automatic voter registration in place. He mm-hmm. sped up government permitting and licensing. He also brought in a uh, universal f- school, a uh, free school breakfast, thanks to some legislative work he did. And then also um, giving supports for women um, uh, with high at high risk for breast cancer, also raising the minimum wage and, and state jobs and all these kinds of things. But there was some pushback. Folks said he needs to do more. There has been, a divided, you know, state house. Well, budget yeah. drama. Let's oh, talk yeah, let's, about that. Yeah. I mean, so so it bring hasn't it in, been. Bring it in. Yeah. It hasn't been a totally clean first year for the no, governor. No. Um, but obviously, I ninety five was a huge Big highlight. Deal. And get the, stuff done. Right. Yeah, I and got that's, it done. And that's his idea of like I'm I'm a get it done governor. I'm all about results, and that was very tangible for people mm-hmm. in our area. And, of course, that news traveled around the country, so it, it brought some plaudits. He from, looked pretty good on that one, but people did push back on his transparency. There, there were he, some questions he bris- about that. He bristled yeah. a bit at, yeah, at this event yesterday mm-hmm. about uh, some questions about whether his 
the administration has been transparent enough on things like daily calendars, funders for the inaugural events. Um, he didn't seem to love the questions about that. Mm-mm. That, I think, is going to be a theme moving forward. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, there were also sexual harassment allegations yeah, um, and a, a taxpayer-funded yeah. settlement against a very top member of his team, um, a legislative liaison. So, you know, uh, that that's also a gray cloud over that his first, almost his first year. is actually not quite. It's, he has it's a little a, bit of time to yeah, go. Yeah, it's a year yeah. since he got elected, not quite a year in office. Mm-hmm. But um, all things that we'll be watching for uh, moving forward. We're also mm-hmm. watching watching for sales. Yes, we are. It's Black Friday. Maybe considered the official start of the holiday shopping season, but for weeks now, we've been bombarded with store deals and sales, and it makes me wonder, Cherry, if retailers are worried about holiday spending this year, concerned that consumers may get a little thrifty. Over the past year, there's been so much uncertainty in the economy. Will inflation rise or fall? Will there be a recession or not? Will the Fed raise interest rates again? Does this factor into how much customers Mm -hmm. will spend over the next month or so? And when it comes to gift giving, what's the best advice for making a present count? We're going to lob all of those questions at our next guest, Kate Lamberton, Wharton School marketing professor, joining us in studio. Kate, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. So, Kate, the Washington Post is reporting that consumers are tightening their spending habits in light of higher prices and more expensive credit. But what are you seeing this shopping season? Do do consumers really care about inflation? Are they even paying attention to it the way economists are? It's a great question because they write these stories every year. They I mean, sure you see do. them every sure single do. year. Yeah. And you'll have one story, one story that says, oh, everybody's going to splurge this year. Another one that's like, everyone's, come on, right? What's happening right now is they're asking people, what do you plan to spend over the holidays? And people are saying, oh, I'm going to be good. I have a budget and I'm going to stick to it. <laughs> but if there is a time when we're not going to and maybe we shouldn't, this is the time. And so what you're getting right now are predictions, which are likely to be wrong anyway. Um, and I would also say what they're reporting to you are averages. So mm. there are probably some people that actually planned to way overspend and some people who plan to underspend. Somewhere in the middle is the number that they actually tell you. So I, I also think we've been living in times of uncertainty chronically for about you know the last four years. Yeah. And after a certain time, uncertainty, you adapt to uncertainty also. It's normal. Oh, we don't know? Eh, okay. <laughs> Let me move on. <laughs> and spend anyways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What is how do you explain just that general phenomenon, though, of like what people say they're going to do and what people do with their money? Because yeah. I always feel like you said there it's, it's annual, these conflicting reports. People, you know, will say the economy's bad, but then they spend a bunch of money. Um, what is like the general explanation for that? Gap. Yeah, so there's been a lot of research on what's called the, the hot cold empathy gap. So if I ask you a question when you're in a cold state, that is when you have time to think about it, you're not under stress, you're going to answer one way. Put you in a situation where there's time pressure and you're tired and there's a lot of distraction going on, you behave completely differently. Mm. And if you think yourself out shopping in a crowded place and you're tired and it's hot and you're done and it's you're driving yourself nuts trying to figure out what the right thing is, you're in a hot state. You're going to make completely different decisions, right? And even the online environment is very distracting. Mm. You are, in a sense, in a hot state because you don't have the cognitive resources to filter things out. So that's the general theory. But you can also think about people who have experienced scarcity in the last few years. You can experience something called frugal fatigue, where you're Mm. just tired of saying no to yourself. Mm. And holidays give us an excuse to stop. 
particularly because we can frame it as doing something nice for someone else. Mm. And it's there's no one's going to get nobody's going to yell at you for being generous. And so if you're under this frugality for so long, this is a moment when you're you let yourself off the hook. And so I want to talk about these these companies. You know, I've been getting text messages telling me, you know, Black Friday deals early. And how are they taking advantage of this? Because Black Friday used to be a day. We used to get up super early and go shopping after Thanksgiving. Now it seems like Black Friday starts right. It starts like at the beginning of November. Yeah, it's like Black Day that ends in Y, basically. <laughs> yeah. right? So it's anything. Um, the the what's interesting is. They're trying to play this card over and over again, and consumers just aren't buying it. So Mm. we've done some research where we looked at things like exploding deals. And retailers use them, use them, use them. We collected data from over 20,000 people, and we just couldn't get them to to work uh, because people are skeptical of those at this point. They know there's going to be another deal. There's going to be another day that comes up. Are they right to be skeptical? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we sniff them out. Yeah. I mean, consumers are pretty smart, and they've seen this for, for a while now. Because there's Black Friday, Small Business Saturday. They Cyber have Sunday, Monday. Cyber Monday. Yep. It's like... And so you're saying there's diminishing returns on all of this for the... At, at this point, those are tactics that people recognize. They so see why do those they still coming. do it? Because there's going to be a segment of people that respond. And they just um, need a little bit of... And, yeah, yeah. And because, look, if one re- retailer stops doing it and everybody keeps doing it, then uh, they've then they're in then it's, it's kind of a, a dilemma problem. So so if everybody's going to do this, everybody has to do it. But at this point, because everyone's doing it, it's a level playing field. So advice: <laughs> you have a budget, um, you want to be generous. Mm-hmm. How do you get the most bang for your buck yeah. in gift giving? Yeah. So step one is don't think about the gift you want. Think about the gift they would want. So mm. put yourself in someone else's shoes. Think through the day in their life. And what you'll probably think of is a thing that it might not be an expensive thing. It might be, oh, you know what? They need a better travel mug because their coffee's all over the place by the time they get to work. That's not an expensive gift. But if it's something that actually fits into their life, it's a meaningful gift. So think about what they actually experience and sort of where you see there's a gap. And then the second thing is to think about experiences rather than stuff. What we've learned over the last few years is that people, all things equal, an experience is deeply meaningful. Um, they can share it with someone else. They can remember it. They can take pictures of it. They can have it forever. We don't adapt to those memories the way we do to stuff. Stuff, mm. we like it for a minute. It's exciting when we open the box. And then we're kind of all like the kids who you know, play with the toy for five minutes and then never look at it again. So to the extent that you can focus on experiences, it's usually a better expenditure of money. Like there should be a gift option to like appear on Studio Two. That would oh, be a wow. cool experience, That's an experience for you. Buy it, buy it all day long. <laughs> oh, if I can say one other thing. Yeah, sure. um, another thing that's really smart if you're looking to receive gifts is to make those gift lists on Amazon. Ah. Because people think that choosing things off that doesn't signal that you care about someone because oh, it's on yeah, the that list. Was my it's assumption. too easy. But actually, people then know that you cared what they wanted. <laughs> Instead of just thinking about what you wanted to give. So even even with a diminished surprise, if mm-hmm. you're actually checking a box for someone, yeah. something they actually want and they've signaled that they want, um, you're still giving them the Absolutely. thrill of gift giving. Yeah, because what they're realizing is that you cared what was important to them. Hmm. And that matters to people. So let me just get the logistics here. Should you create one or should you ask people to create one? I think you could do both. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, I know in some families these are normal. Everyone does it now. And at first I rolled my eyes, right? I thought that's so tacky. 
but what research says is actually it's fine you know huh. it's, it's it's really people appreciate that you cared what they actually wanted holiday it's, registries folks yeah, get them and, going and, and stay within your budget people because mm-hmm. the bills do come due <laughs> they absolutely there's, there's do the, the last <laughs> piece of advice from Cherry Gang is good <laughs> we appreciate all the advice though from Kate Lambertson Wharton School Marketing Professor thanks so much for joining us on Studio 2 and being our holiday guide I'm going to do those, those gift oh, oh, oh. I like that. <laughs> Coming up, we're talking about endangered food. Call us with your questions or comments, 888-477-9499, or email studio2 at whyy.org. And welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thanksgiving is a holiday that revolves around what we think of as traditional American food. You know, turkey, cranberries, pumpkin, squash. Mashed potatoes. Don't forget the potatoes. Oh, yeah, and mac and cheese, too. But I don't know how American. <laughs> but our next guest has been investigating vanishing food, varieties and indigenous foodways once popular that are disappearing and what that tells us about our nation's checkered history. In this book, Sarah Lohman dips into eight rare foods. The book is called Endangered Foods, and these foods include an heirloom New Jersey cider apple, the Buckeye chicken, Coachella Valley dates, churro sheep, and a small, sweet Carolina African runner peanut bought to America by enslaved West Africans. Sarah Lohman joins us now to talk about some of these crops that are no longer on menus and why she thinks they're worth preserving. Sarah, welcome to Studio Two. Hi, I am thrilled to be here. We are thrilled to have you. And we want to ask our listeners a question before we ask you some. Are there foods that you remember eating that are no longer available? Maybe ways of preparing foods that are being forgotten Call us and share your thoughts. The number is 888-477-9499. Our email is studio2 at whyy.org. Well, Sarah, first of all, congratulations on your book, Thank Endangered you. Eating. You spent years. Thank you so much. Yes. Yes, years. You, you spent <laughs> years sort of traveling the world, eating your way through history. Um, yeah. Tell us what got you hooked on the issue of endangered foods. You know, it was a, it was a, the surprise of it because I feel like we think about you know endangered animals. We talk about pandas, right? But we don't really think about ingredients or foods being endangered. So um, it came about because I, I read this article through BBC Travel about Sufilandeu, which is known as the rarest pasta on the planet. It is made in Sardinia by about six women, and you only get the chance to try it twice a year if you complete a 37-kilometer pilgrimage through the mountains of Sardinia. And so it was this story about the women who still make it and now the steps they're taking in the modern world to preserve this very, very specific pasta that's so important to their region. That article linked to something called the Arc of Taste, which is uh, created by Slow Food International. And it's a list of thousands of ingredients around the world, as well as hundreds of ingredients right here in America that are on the verge of extinction. What they are, where they are, and why they're important. And so it really sent me down the rabbit hole. And that's a free resource available to anyone. Just hop online and look up Arc of Taste. Arc of Taste. Like Noah's Ark, by Mm -hmm. the way. A-R-K. Exactly. Um, So... You pick eight of these and you dedicate a chapter to each of them in the book. Um, And I know the the explanation for why foods fade 
or ingredients fade is a little different in each case. But could you give us an overview of some of the main reasons or themes that run through the endangerment of these these ingredients? Yeah, because it certainly was a journey with each investigation of, you know, why are these disappearing? And it's been interesting as I've done events, a lot of people have asked about climate change. Obviously, that's on people's minds. How is that affecting these plants and animals? And strangely, it really isn't. The Mm. causes of the extinction of these many ingredients are man-made, but they're things more along the lines of industrialization, housing development, pollution, and colonization, honestly. So it's, it's also things, though, that on a hopeful note that we have a lot more control of right now and can feel more in control of. And there are people on the ground doing really good work. So, you know, it's the sign that we can throw our energies into these much smaller focuses that might have a really big impact. And so I want to draw your attention to our local connection. Um, We're in Philly, but we're we're, uh, right over the line. There's New Jersey. And one apple, you write, from the 17th century onward, Newark, New Jersey, was the major uh, producer of cider in America. And the Harrison apple was the favorite and most celebrated. First of all, what is the Harrison apple and what made it so amazing? And then Walk us through its little history here. So it is a small green apple with black specks. It's not particularly attractive. And if you take a bite out of it off the tree, it's also not particularly pleasant tasting, but that's what how most cider apples are too. But it has this perfect balance of sweetness and tannins and sourness that when you press the juice, either to make sweet or hard cider, it is a really just rich, incredible product. And I've now had this cider grown um, with the apples grown in different orchards around the country and made by different cideries around the country. And the flavors have ranged from very sweet and tart to very like barnyard funky. It's really unusual to get so much character out of just one apple. And so the Harrison apple, Sarah, uh, why Mm -hmm. did it fall out of favor? Because boy, does it sound delicious. delicious. Uh, We like cider. And at one point you write in the book, you know, Cider was like America's drink. It was, you know, way above beer. So what happened to the Harrison apple and, and sort of cider in general? Yeah, so we just stopped drinking cider. I mean, there were a couple big cultural shifts. One of them was there was a large German immigration to America in the middle of the 19th century, and they brought lager beer with them. And uh, we'd only really been making ale, which is traditionally served room temperature and has a very high alcohol content, whereas lager has a much lower alcohol content and even in the 19th centuries was served iced, uh, nice and cold. And it just really caught on. And in part because, you know, cider is very, uh, very much an agricultural product, much like wine made from grapes is. And as we were industrializing, it was much easier to process grapes in the city into beer than it was apples into cider. And then, of course, the temperance movement, which started back in the 1830s and then ended up in prohibition, also had a huge effect on cider. You know, if you had your own orchard and were pressing your own hard cider from those apples, that actually was not illegal during prohibition in America. But it was also a cultural movement. So people were like giving you the side eye if you had apple trees. And in Mm. Newark and side eye, not the cider. That was the problem. Yes. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's the name of the next book. That's amazing. And And that's one of the things that's so interesting, though, I want to highlight, though. um, Sorry to cut you off. As you talked about how oftentimes the reasons for these, you know, food extinctions are totally, you know, policy driven. Mm-hmm. I mean, prohibition was yeah. just, you know, like you said, a movement and then 
a series of laws and then all of a sudden people didn't want their apples associated with big bad alcohol anymore. Exactly. And I can even speak to like the Philadelphia, Newark, you know, New Jersey area too, that even a hundred years ago, people were writing about, you know, our hills used to be covered with orchards and now they're covered with houses. So in New York state as well, about 70% of farmland has been lost to housing development. So that's been a major effect on our region's agriculture as well, specifically these apples. Interesting. And now there's this new resurgence to bring back the Harrison what is it like to try to resurrect um, a nearly extinct, you know, um, piece like food like the Harrison? What is that looking yeah. like? Oh, my gosh. Well, let me tell you what happened with the Harrison, because I find the story like funny. It's really hysterical. So there is this guy named Paul Guides, and he was actually in grad school for, I believe, neurobiology. And he decided he wanted to start making cider, that there wasn't any good cider. And so he looked in some 19th century apple guides and everyone kept talking about the Harrison and how perfect and delicious it was. And he's calling orchards and he's looking around and even like wrote the USDA and nobody's heard of this apple. So he decides he's going to go looking for it. So he drives from New Hampshire down to the Newark area to a town called Livingston. He stops at one bagel shop. This is 1976. And he asks the guy behind the counter, hey, do you know of any old orchards or cider mills around here? And the person behind the counter says, yeah, just go right up the hill. And so he goes right up the hill. He finds this place that was known as Nettie Ox Orchard, which had been founded in the 1850s. And behind the house, he sees what he thinks is a Harrison tree. So he knocks on the door and says, hey, do you have any Harrison trees? And the guy that answers says, yeah, that's the last one I have. I'm about to cut it down for my vegetable garden. So Paul goes and takes cuttings that he can graft and begins to propagate the tree. And to me, the funny part of this is he didn't realize what he had found. He didn't because Mm. the tree was so easy for him to find. He assumed it actually wasn't that rare when in reality there had been pomologists, which is the word for people who study apples, who had spent their entire lives trying to find this tree. So it's his discovery um, in combination with the work of a pomologist named Tom Burford that brought the Harrison back, got it planted in cider orchards. And now, you know, there are thousands of this tree across the country, but, you know, no, it's a drop in the bucket compared to how many red delicious trees are out there. We are talking about rare foods with author Sarah Lohman. Her new book is Endangered Eating. If you want to join this conversation, perhaps you want to tell us about a food that you remember that isn't so popular anymore or a way of preparing foods mm-hmm. that you feel should be revived, give us a call um, or send us an email. The number is 888-477-9499. The email is studio2 at org. And Sarah, I want to bring in an email now from a listener named Mary who says, as a kid, I loved stamen wine sap apples Mm, we'd get them at Steyer's orchard which closed in the 80s we saw them at the reading terminal market which is a market here in philadelphia a few years ago but they're still hit or miss um i want you mentioned in the book i think there's uh, fewer than 100 apple varieties grown commercially these days we're 14,000. yeah i thought 100 that seems like a lot but uh, there used to be way way more so just generally talk about why there tends to be a narrowing down of sort of varietals when you talk about apples or or, or other types of produce. Yeah, I mean, most of those apples that we've lost were cider apples. So if you stop drinking cider, then you lose those apples. Additionally, during Prohibition, where there was that big bad alcohol association, um, grocery stores decided 
decided to try to associate apples with health. That was the era when apple an apple a day keeps the doctor away, when that saying came out. Mm. And they also thought it would be easier for advertising if they just focused on a couple apple varieties. So there was this huge narrowing of the apples out there available to us. Very interesting. You write, it's estimated that 75% of vegetable varieties worldwide have been permanently lost, while 95% of America's historical produce is gone. I want you to make the argument for saving food diversity. What What is all these different types of food? What do they do for us? Why should? Why is this important? Well, I mean, my first argument is very simple. It's just why not? Why not have a panoply of different tastes and textures and, you know, beautiful colors in our produce and on our dinner table? There's a pleasure to that. And there's no rule that says we have to have this food and not the other, right? Um, and then additionally, you know, a lot of these foods, the ones that I write about particularly are culturally important. I write about a lot of indigenous communities where their food is not just a part of their culture, it's absolutely sacred. So I think that it enriches our diversity and culture as Americans to make sure these foods stick around. And on that point, uh, Sarah, I was hoping you could talk about uh, the ram that you chronicle mm -hmm. in one of the chapters yeah. in this book. Tell folks about this species and why it is um, so important to the indigenous community um, that that uh, for many, many years relied upon it. Yeah, so this is the Navajo churro sheep. Um, this is a sheep that has been husbanded and shepherded by the Navajo or Diné community for at least 400 years. And they are really sort of a partner animal in that within that community. Their wool is very specifically bred for hand weaving. So I think probably people are familiar with the famous Navajo woven blankets and that comes from Navajo churro wood but their meat is particularly sweet and delicious and really tastes of home for a lot of Navajo people. It's available in small quantities outside of the Navajo Nation in the Southwest, but this animal truly is not just a sacred animal to the Navajo people, but especially adapted to the tough terrain and climate of the Southwest. In the 1930s, the government tried to crossbreed these sheep with other breeds that they thought might be more profitable for the Navajo, but their wool didn't work for hand weaving and the animals couldn't survive in the demanding climate of the Southwest. So, you know, there is, of course, one argument for, well, this, this sheep gets fatter faster and gets bigger faster and is popular across market. But there's always also an argument for, you know, this species, this sheep is specially adapted to this region and this climate. And one of the interesting things is it seems to be some type of injustice here because the government yeah. interference almost took uh, this Navajo churro sheep into uh, made it endangered. I think there were yes. uh, almost a million and then it went down to 400 <laughs> at yeah. one point. Um, yeah, could you talk about really this government interference and how it can really um, impact the availability and the existence um, of food like a, a, a churro sheep? Yeah, and this has a lot to do with, of course, foods within indigenous communities, because our government policy for so long was to destroy or assimilate the indigenous people. And one way to uh, assimilate people into what one thinks is the proper way to be American is to break their ties with food. And so that was a lot of moving indigenous people to reservations, not just to take land that the American government wanted, but to break 
pick their ties with their native food supplies and completely change their dinner tables even by providing unfamiliar foods like pork or white flour. So on two different occasions, uh, once in the middle of the 19th century and once in the 1930s, the American government uh, stepped in and said, basically, you can't have these sheep. Um, in the 1930s, there was concerns about erosion as the Navajo people were pressed to less and less land. There was more uh, overgrazing, and it was being blamed for silt buildup behind the Hoover Dam. And so that's when the the Navajo Truro sheep went from basically a million sheep to about 400 in this government uh, effort called stock reduction. Now, again, since the 1970s, the breed has become stable. There are a couple thousand registered Navajo Truro sheep nationwide, um, both in and outside the Navajo Nation. And a lot of amazing advocates working with inside the community to both preserve and restore this traditional shepherding lifestyle. And, and quick follow up for right. that, because I feel like, you know, yeah. resurrecting, um, you know, uh, uh, almost extinct species of apple is a lot different from bringing back an endangered species used as food. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about the difference there and what it's like to bring something back like this, this churro sheep? I mean, it's, it's, you know, in a way, it's not so different. It requires um, an, a focus of time, money, and effort. So with the Navajo Churro, it took a handful of people seeking out, um, you know, unhybridized flocks and looking for those original sheep and also looking at um, 19th century and early 20th century descriptions of those sheep and then breeding those animals and looking for those defining characteristics of those sheep, which in uh, the Navajo Churro, interestingly, is they're known as polycyrate. So they can have not just two, but four horns and even up to six or eight horns, although I've never seen an example of that mm. in real life and with an apple it is it again was the process of okay we have to find it there are people out there who are literally making wanted posters for long lost apples hoping that maybe someone has a tree in their backyard that they just hadn't really noticed before it it actually happens quite commonly wow. and then hopefully that old tree is still producing scion wood which is the green wood that you can make cuttings of and then graft onto new rootstock and then make copies of that tree and then of course with both sheep and apples you have to get people willing to bring these sheep into their flocks or plant these apples in their orchards and that's how you restore a species i think the final component lands on us um we there needs to be interest in these products we want to invest in these communities either by donating to advocacy organizations organizations, or I think probably easy for Philadelphians, buy some cider from a local cidery that keeps trees in the ground. Yeah, I, I, could like I could do that. I could do that. I'll sign up for that. We're talking with Sarah Lohman, uh, author, author of Endangered Eating. Um, while we're back on the subject of apples, uh, a listener named T.Y. asks, why do the apple varieties we find at the grocery store seem to get brown so fast? Mm. I don't know if I've noticed that myself, uh, Sarah, but... Uh, can you address that? And, and maybe more generally, just like yeah, when we talk sure, about grocery store way. selection, like what do mm -hmm. what do the 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 like the, the supermarket uh, managers, what do they what do they really want for an sure. apple variety? When it comes to apple browning, that just has to do with oxidation, you know, as the interior of the apple is exposed to air. And it tends to be the apples that are more tannic, oxidize more quickly. Tannins is that sort of like mouth drying feeling you get from like maybe a dry wine or a tea. And there are definitely heirloom apples that do that same thing. And actually are sometimes blended into cider because it gives it a deep caramel color. 
But unfortunately, in our modern grocery store system, um, apples are graded based on appearance and not at all on flavor, which seems like a miserable way to judge food. <laughs> and that's how our culture shifted away from, you know, 14,000 apples to the red delicious, which I now think is the butt of many, many jokes as being a really pretty apple, but like generally pretty gross. But I will tell you that in the last decade, the number one selling apple has shifted away from the red delicious and to the gala apple. And I, I'm a elder millennial and I feel like my generation is blamed for ruining a lot of industry. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently we've also ruined the red delicious industry because it's my generation that has begun to pick taste over appearance. So the gala, you know, it's not a huge step, but I do think it is a better apple, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. They, and my, it's it's a bad name. It should call it red attractive, not red delicious, because it's just not. No, it's not. Yes. And my favorite apple is Good the honey point. crisp. By well, the, the honey way. crisp. Love a honey crisp. crisp. And you know, I always just recommend people like exploring your local orchard i yeah. love going to mm -hmm. um i'm from ohio originally there's an orchard out here called ritman and they you know ha will have like 24 different apple varieties laid out depending what time of season it is they label them all they tell you what they're good for you can pick one out of each bin and fill up a bag and do an apple tasting and it's a wonderful adventure that leads me to discover like new favorite apples outside of the six maybe i can find in the grocery store very interesting and by the way um you you're Endangered Eating is your current book, but you are working on another book that has yeah. a very Philadelphia connection. Can you yes, give us it does. a preview? Yes. So my next book is going to be all about ice cream history. And there Ooh. are huge Philadelphia connections with ice cream history um, in no small part because uh, before and after the Civil War, free black men and women tended to come into Philadelphia. It was a very like free, black, positive entrepreneurship city. And because many of those men and women had cooked in the wealthiest households of the, of the South, they knew their stuff. And they started catering businesses, and many of them specialized in ice cream. So uh, American-style ice cream was credited to be invented by a Black op entrepreneur in Philadelphia. And that basically means that it's as rich or creamy as a custard egg-based ice cream, but doesn't require that pre-cooking step that custard takes too. So Philadelphia really influenced the spread and uh, the popularity of American ice cream in the 19th century. So I'm so excited to dig deeper into that story. City of first. I know. And you're, you're speaking our language. Cider, <laughs> ice cream. I mean, you're right on track here, Sarah. I just want to, as it's we wrap up, city. <laughs> as we wrap up, um, you write in the book that what we expect from food is consistency. Yeah. And I wonder um, if there is a downside to expecting consistency from food. Because on the surface, it sounds all right. And do you think that sort of explains a lot of what you write about in the book? And we have about 45 seconds left. Sure. I think that consistency on one hand, we want to go to the grocery store and pick up a Budweiser or pick up some leafy greens and have them be the same. But variety is also the spice of life. A single varietal cider made year to year is going to taste different, just like wine. Going to a farmer's market means there might be some new produce for you to discover. I think we can have both. And if we have the means and the access, we should definitely explore both because that supports small farmers, makers, producers, breeders, fishers, everything. Well, that was wonderful. Sarah, I have to say, you got it. This is a great job. We were talking about Thanks. your job was to eat your way through history with endangered <laughs> eating. Uh, yep. Congratulations on the book. And thank you for being on Studio 2. It's a pleasure. Thank you both. 
That was the voice of Sarah Lohman, author of Endangered Eating. Coming up, we're talking to Conrad Benner, who has a new podcast here at WHYY called Art Outside about our very own city of Philadelphia, the mural capital of the world. Stay tuned for that conversation. And welcome back, everybody, to Studio Two. Hello, I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And hello, I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, I can tell you, I've seen so much great art on the streets walking around here in Philadelphia. It is a mural on one side and then some urban knitting on the fence on the other side. It feels like the a large outdoor art museum in the world, doesn't it? It sure does. Yeah. Especially in South Philly, my neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. And there is uh, one guy who's been making a name for himself for more than a decade now, Conrad Benner, a blogger and public art enthusiast who has really lifted up this entire scene. Yeah. And now Conrad joined WHYY for a five-piece series on public art. It's called Art Outside. The first episode drops today, and it highlights who Conrad calls Philly's own Banksy, a street artist with a literally big message. And we are so happy to have Conrad Benner with us in the studio today. Conrad, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks for having me. This is so fun. It's so fun to see your faces in real life. I've heard you on the radio for so long. And we've been hearing your podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess we have seen your face because it is on your website, Streets Department. Um, And you've been doing this work for a long time. And tell folks what your sort of uh, street art, public art, origin story is you're from Philly you're from Fishtown when did this um, when did the stuff that you know we see every day when did that start to captivate you yeah it's almost like when didn't it so I grew up in Fishtown I grew up in Philly Um, I went to Central High School graduated from Kensington and I think I was always more interested in the academic side of school but it was in my 20s when I got like a new friend group I was living around South Street and I had some friends who moved here from SCAD and other art schools and they were new to the city and they were like let's go explore things so we went to like first Friday shows and we walked around a lot more I had a boyfriend at the time who bought me a point-and-shoot camera and I would just photograph things and what I realized at that time in my life in my early 20s was how just dynamic our art scene was here in the city particularly our public art so, yeah, with that point and shoot, for example, 90% of what I shot were wheat paste and murals that I saw around mm-hmm. the city. But, yeah, I love our art scene here in this in Philadelphia, and I've just been really excited to be able to document it over. It'll be 13 years this January Wow, with Con- Streets Department. Yeah, Congratulations on that. And I want you to talk <clears throat> about public art generally because yeah. um, you look around. It's everywhere in Philly. We have thousands of murals. Some of them are, you know, I guess, official murals, and some of them are kind of unofficial. Sure, yeah. Can you talk about uh, street art, public art, and how it differs from the other art that can a lot of times be lauded and celebrated a lot more than what you may see on the streets? Yeah, I mean, art is subjective. So, like, whatever you you can connect with whatever you want to on the street. But I think when you're talking about art in the public space, you're talking about two broad categories, which it sounds like you were describing, which is commissioned and non-commissioned. So on mm-hmm. the commission side, you have things like murals and public art and monuments that take usually institutions to create or wall owners. There's lots of permissions and money involved in that. 
And then on the other side, there's non-commissioned things, which is like street art and graffiti, which uh, is how my blog started, really focusing on the street art of Philadelphia, the stickers, the mm-hmm. wee paste. At the top of this, you talked about the yarn bomb installations, yes. as they're called, knit installations. So in a city like Philadelphia, we have artists who, even when they're working non-commissioned, oftentimes will use spaces that are kind of empty and most folks are okay with, you know, abandoned buildings or construction materials. Um, sometimes the backs of street signs, which people might have feelings about, but I like that there's art on the back of street signs. Never bothered you know? me. Right. No, it never bothered me either. P- people, people are pissed off about that. Well, I don't know. You never know. I, I don't think so because they stay up for years. <laughs> they a lot sure of them. do. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the city, but you know, the city spends a lot of money getting rid of some of the stuff like that. Oh, so, interesting. You know. It's there. Yeah. But in this podcast, we explore that with with these artists. So we talk with a sticker artist who does that, who puts stickers on the backs of street signs. And we talk with a graffiti writer who, you know, goes on abandoned buildings and construction materials. And we talk about how for these artists and for people who appreciate this art form, like it's really kind of a healthy thing for cities to have this art form uh, in, in our public spaces. In Ep- addition to the commission stuff. In addition. Uh, episode one is about an artist named Kid Hazo. Yeah. Um, and his voice is actually disguised in the episode because he wants to remain anonymous let's hear a clip 10 years ago when i created this i really just wanted to focus on a mysterious artist and not focus on the person and makes it a lot more fun to focus on the art than actually people worrying about who i am what i sound like what i look like and kid hazo's art is is winky and Mm -hmm. fun and uh, you see it all over the city and yet besides you we don't really know who Kid Hazo is. So so why do you think so many of these artists invest a lot of time and effort mm. and money into something that is not for glory, necessarily not for glory, because we don't even know well, their identities. And especially in Kid Hazo's case, so we talk with him, you know, some artists do start doing wheat paste or yarn installations, and then they develop interest from institutions like mural arts or mural organizations and they end up building an art career but for kid hazo it's always just been this experiment that he does for fun um he never wants to turn it into a quote-unquote professional career and his goal is to make people smile he calls himself a comedic street artist um his goal is to put artwork in the world that just makes you stop in your tracks and smile and i'm a big believer in the butterfly effect you know like little things can make you can change your day you know if you tip well and the barista smiles at you or whatever maybe the next hour of your life's a little bit better and then you send a nicer email than a meaner (laughs) one and then it kind of stacks up your day so when you're walking down the street and you see something in the street that you really like i hope it changes your day in a positive way and i think kid hazo feels that way yeah it's such an interesting perspective and one of the things i really liked well great podcast by the way congratulations on that but just sort of like the idea of doing it at night you know, <laughs> yeah. he has on this mask and it's like very mysterious. Um, and, and a lot of graffiti artists are the same way. Can you talk about this whole idea of it being secret and sure. sort of stealth like and then you just come, wake up one day and it's just like this big, you know, graffiti mural on the side of an abandoned building. And and that part of it, it seems very it's so fascinating to me. Yeah, I think listeners will be really interested in the conversations we have over the next five episodes because we get into that a lot. There are kind of written and unwritten rules, even around the non-commissioned stuff about where you put up, when you put up you know, whose work you go over or the, the fact that you don't go over someone else's work. So there are all these rules that mm. folks are basically following. 
Um, but one thing that happens is when artists are usually new or at the beginning of their career, particularly street artists, they'll go up at night. I think Simone Salib talks about that in her first episode or in her interview, and we talk about it in the first episode. But then you very quickly learn that you look shadier doing yeah. something at three in the morning <laughs> than just like in the middle of the day. So, yeah, we explore that with Kid Hazel in this first episode. He, he realized very quickly, like, OK, if you just blend into the daylight and, you know, he wears a costume that helps him blend in. We talk about that. Looks like a blue collar uh, worker, basically. You, yeah, you kind of blend a little bit more. And we do live in a city. We live in the mural capital of the world. We have the largest public arts program in the nation with Mural Arts Philadelphia. So people are used to seeing people create art in the public space. And I think that that's uh, an advantage to street artists who, you know, people walking by think, oh, probably meant to do that. You know, or at the very least, they don't mind. Because, again, yeah. this is adds so much value to our streets. Um, I grew up in Philadelphia walking around. I walk everywhere. I still have never owned a car. So I'm walking and taking SEPTA everywhere. And I love walking past some construction wall or an abandoned building and seeing a wheat paste and seeing the artists at work. And it's often just a reflection of who we are as a city and what's going on in the world. And yeah. it's really fun. I think it adds so much value to the city. I'm still dying to know who Kid Hazo is. Um, <laughs> and you were like, oh, I know. Oh, I know. He's from Philly. He works yeah. in office jobs, sometimes wears a tie. I can't rule out but that he's Jim Kenny based on that information. I so cannot you never know. either. Um, Guarantee you it's not. <laughs> okay, there you go. There's you your clue. You can say that. You can There's say that. <laughs> Real quickly, um, you know, these this stuff pops up all the time on, on walls and buildings. How do you make contact with the people initially to find out who they are, especially the ones that are trying to remain anonymous? Or do they reach out to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we live in a connected world with social media, so we're all going back and forth. But one thing I want to say, are we, round, are we winding up? Yeah, yeah. I have mm -hmm. to say this. This is something so innate in, in our human brains. We have been painting on walls for tens of thousands of years since cave paintings to cornbread to Keith Haring. Like, yes. this is so innate in us. And why, right? Like, so with this podcast, we're really trying to explore that. And it's never been more documented and more celebrated i think than it is now with social media because now we're seeing yep. how much people are excited by it so yeah and you can create that network and community around it in a way you it was maybe harder to do before uh-huh and by the way i saw some kid has stuff online yeah. that you can buy like people it, it's an economy um for street artists art deserve well. to make money yes absolutely <laughs> so uh Keep an eye out for the other episodes of WHY's Art Outside, hosted by Conrad Benner, um, blogger. And you can download Art Outside wherever you get your podcasts. Conrad, thank you so much for joining us today on Studio 2. Thanks for having me. And this is the theme song, by the way. It's I by, love uh, it. Snack Time. Snack Time. Um, and that is uh, That's our show the for end today. of lunchtime. That's the end of our show today. Producers yeah. Debbie Builder, Paige Marie Bessler, Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us. <laughs>